Feed My Starving Children is a Christian nonprofit organization committed to feeding God's children hungry in body and spirit. Due to the current crisis in Ukraine, they have provided 4.5 million meals, which has left their food supply for the rest of the world significantly depleted. Sagebrush has been given an incredible opportunity to come alongside Feed My Starving Children to provide a unique volunteer experience for the whole family. We've been tasked to pack 264,000 more meals to reach hungry children all across the world. If you would like to volunteer on August 12th or 13th at the Riverside campus to help pack these meals, visit sagebrush.church events or the Sagebrush app and sign up today. Well, I want to welcome everybody here today, those joining us on the stream and on TV. We're so thankful that you all are a part of the Sagebrush family. This is Feed My Starving Children. We've been working with this company uh, for years and years and years. They are a class act organization. Uh, here's what happened. The Ukrainians with the war and everything, all those meals went there. We don't have enough food to feed the other starving children around the world. So they called us on the phone. And they said, you know, we've had a partnership with you for years, and every time we've needed your help, sagebrushers have always stepped up. So we've committed to packing 264,000 meals, and because of your generosity, we have already paid for all the food, $65,000 worth of food. This is enough food to fill an entire semi-truck. And so here, here's what I need. I need you to be the hands and feet of Jesus. If you go to our app, you go to our website, there's a banner there that you can click on. Now, here's what's going to happen. When you show up to your two-hour allotted slot, they're going to give you a hairnet because nobody wants to eat your hair, okay? So we're all going to be jazzing in hairnets, and then you're around the table, and you're putting all these different elements together, and you're sealing up these bags. We put them in boxes, and then we put them on the semi-trailer truck. I need 1,400 volunteers to do this. Now, we're always talking about making a difference with our one shot at life. And I know that you're not the kind of people who are going to look to the left or to the right for someone else to do what needs to be done. And we're always talking about making a difference and making an impact. Well, friends, I'm serving it up for you. This is an opportunity. This food that we put together and send over to third world countries, they call it crack. Now, we're not putting drugs together and smuggling drugs into foreign countries. They call it crack because it brings them vitality. It brings them life. It gives them the nutrients and the proteins that they don't get in their normal meals that they have. And this is for the kids. So please take the time during the boring parts of my message today to hit the banner and sign up and be the hands and feet of Jesus, all right? I also want you to know that we've sent $25,000 to help fight the fires all around New Mexico, and we spent $5,000 at the storehouse of New Mexico to feed the working poor. You guys are making a difference every single day in ways that you never dreamed. You've been so good about giving your tithes and your offerings. Now I need you to give you a little bit of your time as well. Let's pray, and then we'll get into the message. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the church because when it's working right the poor are fed and the lost are found lord the kingdom of you is advanced as a result so lord we don't want to be a group of people who just show up or just watch online we want to be your hands we want to be your feet we don't want to be just hearers of your word we want to be doers of your word and we do lord and the depths of our soul want to leave this world in a little bit better shape than the way that we found it 
Lord, we can't do anything about the big world, but we can do something about our piece of it. So help us to be faithful with what you've entrusted to our care. Lord, use us in ways that we never dreamed possible. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Came across a story this past week, true story, happened in 320 A.D., The Roman emperor came down with an edict, and the edict said that every man, woman, and child needed to bow down to him and worship him as the one true God. And if you were worshiping any other god, you were to renounce that god and only worship the emperor. Well, there was a group of men in a regiment, soldiers in the Roman army. They were called the Thundering Legion. They were in the mountain region of Armenia, and word came to them that they had to denounce their faith in whatever god they had, and they were to put their faith in their Roman emperor. Well, there were 40 young men who were already Christians, who believed that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the King of kings, and he is the Lord of lords, and he's the only one worthy of our praise. And so they said to their general, we will not renounce Jesus, we will not bow our knee. Well, the general sent word back to the emperor. The emperor got quite upset. He said, give them one more opportunity, and if they don't bow the knee, then they will be executed. So the general pulled the 40 men aside. He said, listen, guys, come on. This isn't that big of a deal. I mean, just renounce Christ and just make the emperor your God, okay? And you can live a long and full life. Well, guess what? They weren't having any of that. And so it went back to the emperor again, and the emperor sent word a second time, and he said, execute them. Now, he chose a means of execution that was cruel. He decided to freeze them to death. They were in the mountains of Armenia. There were winter storms. There was a frozen lake. He told the general, have the 40 men disrobe, stand in the middle of the frozen lake, And then they would have time to think about their decision. And if they wanted to recant their faith in Christ, they could do so. So the soldiers are there. They're making fun of the 40 men who are making a stand for Jesus Christ. And they think that their taunting and their jeers and their mocking is somehow going to break their spirit. But they grew awfully quiet when those 40 men disrobed and walked out to the middle of that lake. The soldiers then began to build a fire to try to entice them to come back. They began to make a meal to try to entice the 40 men to return, but none of them would. And you could hear the chant in the distance of the 40 men. Here die 40 men for Jesus Christ. Here die 40 men for Jesus Christ. Hours went by, and finally one man broke ranks. And he headed to the warmth of the fires and he denounced Jesus and said that the emperor was God. And 39 men stood in the midst of that frozen lake. Well, imagine you're one of the soldiers by the fire. You would never forget this moment, would you? And one soldier was so overwhelmed at what he had seen from the faith of those 39 people that he turned to his general and he said, I will take that man's place. I want to be a Christian. And with that, he disrobed and walked out to the frozen lake. And the chants continued. Here die 40 men for Jesus Christ. And that morning, when the sun came up, all 40 men were frozen to death. 
when you get to the point in your life where Jesus means that much to you, you become a very dangerous individual to the powers of this dark world. The temptations that you once faced that seemed so attractive to you, they won't be as attractive anymore. And this idea of making your name great, well, that will pale in comparison to making the name of Jesus great. You won't be living your life for your little kingdom of mud that's here today and gone tomorrow. No, when you have that kind of faith and that kind of commitment, the only kingdom that matters is the kingdom of God and finding ways to advance his kingdom. Well, we're in the middle of this series called Troublemaker. No doubt Jesus came and he caused an awful lot of trouble. And the last time we were together, we talked about how Jesus was out in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was tempted by Satan, yet he did not sin. So the question is, is what happened to Jesus after he left the wilderness, after he was tempted? Well, the Bible tells us that he went back to his hometown, and there he went into the synagogue. Now, some of you don't know what a synagogue is. It's a place of worship for Jewish people. They would gather together, and they would study the Old Testament. On this particular day, Jesus is given the opportunity to share a passage of Scripture from the Old Testament. Now, this is Jesus going to proclaim that he is the Son of God and that he is the Messiah, and it doesn't go over too well. He picks a passage of scripture in the book of Isaiah. It was written 600, 700 years before Jesus has this moment in time. It's a messianic prophecy. So Jesus is proclaiming he is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. Let's, let's look at it. Jesus read this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, what's interesting about this passage of Scripture is that Jesus stops at the comma. He doesn't finish the last verse. Now, the question you have to ask yourself is, why does he stop at the comma and don't go all the way to the period? What's after the comma? This is how the verse ends. And the day of vengeance of our God. But he stopped reading that. He didn't read, and the day of vengeance of our God. He stopped at the comma. Why did he stop at the comma? It's because the day of vengeance of our God comes at the second coming of Jesus. So what's Jesus proclaiming? He's saying, ladies and gentlemen, you have a window of opportunity. I have come. I have come to set you free. I have come to heal the sick. I have come to give you abundant life on this earth and eternal life in heaven. I have come to pay the price for your sin, a debt that is so great that there's no way you could pay for it yourself. I've come for you. You can repent. You can walk with me and talk with me and do life together with me. And you can have the emptiness taken away from you. You have a window of opportunity. The day of the Lord has come. But there will be a day, and it will happen like a blink of an eye, like a thief in the night, when the window of opportunity will shut, and you will miss, you will miss the Messiah, and it will be too late for you. And when that window shuts, all hell will break loose upon this earth, 
and you'll see catastrophe after catastrophe, hyperinflation. My goodness, a whole week's wages won't even buy you a loaf of bread. So take advantage of this window of opportunity. The Messiah has come for you to rescue you from yourself. The people didn't appreciate that. They looked at each other and they said, what in the world? What in the world? What's he? Who does he think he is? Reading from that passage, isn't this Mary's son? Isn't this Joseph's kid? Didn't he live right down the street? And now he's proclaiming that he's the Messiah? This would be the equivalent, well, not quite the equivalent, of Peter Parker standing in front of his high school assembly and announcing that he's Spider-Man. Nobody's going to believe that until he starts shooting the webs out of his hands. You know what I'm saying? It would be the equivalent or somewhat of the equivalent of Clark Kent finally taking off his glasses and revealing that he is, in fact, Superman. I mean, this is an amazing disguise. When I take these off, you're like, who's sitting up there now? I don't recognize who that is. It's me. It would be the equivalent of Batman taking off his mask and saying, I'm Batman and they'd say, no, you're not. Batman has a raspy voice. I'm Batman. <laughs> they didn't believe it. Jesus continues. He said, surely you'll quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what you've heard they did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you there will be many widows and there was many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. What's Jesus' point with this passage of scripture? Well, he brings up Elijah and he brings up Elisha. You know the stories, right? Elijah finds himself in the middle of a famine. He's by a brook, and the brook is dried up. And the Lord comes to him and says, I want you to go to Zarephath. There's a widow there that will take care of you. So Elijah's thinking he's getting ready to go on easy street. It's been tough for the last few years with the famine and ravens bringing him food to eat and things like that. And so he gets there, he meets the widow, and he finds out that she's in worse shape than, than he is. That she's even making her last meal, and after they eat the last meal, her and her son are going to die. So Elijah travels all this distance to meet with this woman who's in worse shape than, than he is. And all of a sudden, Elijah, through the power of God, does a miracle for this woman. And they have enough food to eat during the famine. The woman is saved, the son is saved, and Elijah is saved as well. And so we have this woman from Zarephath who places her faith in a God she didn't even know about. What's Jesus' point? He says, do you think that during this time there weren't a lot of widow women in Israel? who were starving as well, and yet none of them had faith, did they? None of them sought the Lord for any kind of relief. It was this foreigner who placed their faith in God. Oh, that got the Israelites' attention. And just to make certain they didn't miss the point, he said, and what about Elisha? Elisha was the one who healed the, the Naaman. You know who Naaman was, right? He was a general from another army from another country. He had leprosy. Well, he also had a servant girl who was an Israelite. And the servant girl said, listen, you want to be healed of your leprosy. There's a prophet in Israel that can do it. And so he packs all of his belongings, gets all of his men together, travels the whole distance, gets to where Elisha is, knocks on the door. Elisha doesn't even go to the door to meet the guy. 
He sends a servant to deal with him. And oh my goodness, Naaman was ticked off about that. He said, you got to be kidding me. What am I, a dog? That he won't come out and talk to me himself? Elisha told the servant, you tell Naaman if he wants to be healed of his leprosy, he needs to go down to the Jordan River and dip his head under seven times. And on the seventh time up, his leprosy will float away. So the servant goes to Naaman. He's already ticked off. Says, this is what you need to do. And Naaman's upset. He says, you've got to be kidding me right now. Do you not realize all the rivers I passed along the way? And they were certainly a lot cleaner than the Jordan River. I won't do it. And one of Naaman's servants came to him and said, let me ask you something. If the prophet asked you to do something difficult, wouldn't you have done it? He said, well, yeah. Well, since he asked you to do something easy, why not do it? So Naaman went down to the Jordan, and every time he dipped, I believe a little bit of his pride floated down the river. Because he finally humbled himself before a holy God and did that which made no sense to him at all. And by the seventh time down, the leprosy was completely gone. What's Jesus' point? Do you think there weren't people in Israel who had leprosy during this time? And yet not one of them called out to God. Not one of them sought him. It was a foreigner who did that. What's he trying to say to them? You're going to miss your window of opportunity. You're going to let pride get the best of you, and you're going to miss the shot at life, real life and real living with a real God. Your window of opportunity has come. Oh, they were mad. They got so angry, they grabbed Jesus, and they took him out to a cliff, and they were going to throw him off the cliff and kill him right there. But the Bible says that Jesus walked right through the crowd and went on his way. They could not accept that Jesus was the Messiah because he wasn't the Messiah that they were hoping for. They were looking for somebody else. And this became a real problem for Jesus in the first century. Friends, when you and I are reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you want to make the Bible come alive to you, you need to understand four groups of people that made Jesus' job very, very difficult. All four groups of people were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a leader, and they were all looking for someone for a different reason, a different motivation. And this is the world that Jesus had to traverse in. The first group of people you need to know about are called the Zealots. The Zealots were the domestic terrorists of the time. These, these people were rough, I'll tell you that right now. Uh, they, they wanted to overthrow Rome. They were looking for a Messiah that would be a military leader. They believed that change in their country would happen only through war. And so what they would do is they would find a Roman soldier in the midst of a crowd. They always had a dagger on them. And if they could get into a crowded area with a Roman soldier, they could come up to that Roman soldier and stab him between his armor, and then they could disappear in the crowd. The Roman authorities were always looking for the zealots. So Jesus comes on the scene, and he begins to say that he is the Messiah. And they look at him and say, is this the military leader we've been looking for? Is this the guy who's going to get everybody fired up and rally them together, and we're going to have a rebellion against the Roman authorities? Because they were sick of the Romans being there. They wanted them off their streets. They wanted them to go back home again. Is this the one we're looking for? So they listened to Jesus and what he had to say. And Jesus would th say things like this, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. Woo! Zealous didn't like Jesus at all. He wasn't the Messiah they were looking for. Because they had an agenda for the Messiah they wanted. Second group of people you need to understand is the Essenes. The Essenes 
were a group of people who had just removed themselves from society. They found themselves in a bubble. They, they got to a place, I guess, where they got to their Christian church and their Christian small groups and read, listened to their Christian music and ate their Christian mints. You've heard of testaments, haven't you? And uh, <laughs> they just isolated themselves from the outside world. They didn't know anybody who wasn't a believer in what they believed in. They just kind of went up to the mountains and kind of hid and said, we'll just be in this holy little bubble and we'll just work on purity. We'll just become the most pure people. The Essenes were weird to me because they had a little law in the Essene community that you couldn't relieve yourself on the Sabbath day because that would make you impure. Now, here's my question. How'd they pull that off? I mean, how do you do that? Because I have to relieve myself every day. You understand what I'm saying? That would be pain unlike any other pain. And you get it every single week. I'm not sure how they did it, but that was one of their goals that they had. So their, their whole opportunity was, hey, let's just get together in our little cluster of friends and to hell with everybody else. You know anybody like that? Maybe you're like that. Do you know anybody that doesn't know Jesus? Do you pray for anybody that doesn't know Jesus? Do you care about anybody who doesn't know? Or are you just kind of stuck in your little bubble like, oh, outside world's scary. <laughs> we'll just have our little huddle here with Jesus and everything will be okay. Well, the Essenes looked at Jesus. It's going to be the Messiah, right? And they said, well, here he is. He's come. He's going to bring us to holiness and to purity. But then they were confused. Why is he hanging around with tax collectors? Why is he hanging out with prostitutes? Why is he hanging out with people who were known as being sinners? And they just couldn't understand why Jesus came. So he wasn't the Messiah that they were looking for either. And then there were the Pharisees. Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. There could never be more than 6,000 Pharisees at one time. And they were very devout people. Oh, my goodness, very devout people. And their whole idea was to obey the Ten Commandments. And so they wanted to rule over people with rules and regulations. These are the things that you have to do, and these are the things that you can't do. And if you do the things you're supposed to do and stay away from the things you're not supposed to do, then you'll be holy before God. And the Pharisees would strut their stuff everywhere they would go and make everybody else feel like a jerk. Make everybody else feel like they're less than. And when someone sinned, when someone blew it, they'd always have a condescending glance. They'd have a condescending stare. Like you're less than. God could never care about such a gross sinner like you. You know anybody like that? They had 25, excuse me, 24 chapters dedicated to how they would honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. It wasn't enough just to take the Ten Commandments and try to live them. They tried to define what the Ten Commandments meant. 24 chapters about how to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And they were wiggity-whack, these people. They had laws like this. A Pharisee couldn't take a bath on the Sabbath for fear of splashing water on the floor. Because if they splashed water on the floor, that would cause a puddle. And someone could come by and they could trip on the puddle, right? They could slip on it. And so if someone came with the towel and cleaned the mess up, guess what? That was considered work and you couldn't work on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees stunk on the Sabbath because they couldn't take a bath, right? Let me give you another one. Couldn't cut your fingernails. Couldn't cut your fingernails on the Sabbath because that was considered work. So you get a hangnail, you just got to live with the hangnail all day long. 
How about this one, ladies? You're going to love this one. You go to the beauty parlor. I don't know what you call those places anymore. You go to get your hair done. And they dye your hair because there's not a single woman that's got their original hair color. You understand what I'm saying? So you go and you dye your hair. But they missed a spot. There's right here in the front, there's a couple of gray hairs that they missed. Well, guess what? You could not pluck those gray hairs on the Sabbath. You just get to stare at them in the mirror and wait for the day that you could. All right? Let me give you another one. If a person was dying, they could give the person medical attention to keep them alive, but they couldn't improve their condition. Say, man, I know you're dying, and I'm going to try to keep you alive. Good luck. No ibuprofen for you, I'll tell you that right now. If you dislocated your shoulder on the Sabbath, they wouldn't allow you to put it back in place. Because that was considered work. So you had to walk around with a dislocated shoulder. They'd let you put cold water on it. Did you see how ridiculous this is? They were so bent on their rules and their regulations that they forgot two very important things. How about you love God? And how about you love others? But they didn't really love God. And they didn't really love other people either. They were disgusted by the sin of other people. And they would pray prayers in public. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this sinner. And Jesus reserved some of his harshest words for those people. And he didn't obey any of their stupid Sabbath laws. And boy, it ticked them off. Ticked them off so much that they're the ones that plotted to have him killed. And then there's the Sadducees. The Sadducees were sad, you see. <laughs> and they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. When you die, that's it. So they, they were the ones who were the collaborators with the Roman authorities. And, and they would get with the Romans and they would say, listen, if you'll give us the, the authority over the temple, we'll give you a kickback of money. So it was all about money for them. And it was a very profitable business, the temple was. William Barclay, in his commentary, estimates that the temple made $5 million a year in the first century. Can you imagine what, how much money that would be in today's dollars? $5 million a year. You say, well, how'd they make their money? Well, they had a, a, a temple tax. But they wouldn't take unkosher money. You had to have temple money. So people would bring their currency. They'd have to get their currency exchanged through a money changer. And they would charge you an exorbitant fee to change out your money so you could pay a kosher temple tax. But that wasn't the only way that they made money. Remember that people would bring sacrifices all throughout the Old and New Testament to, so they could be forgiven of their sins. The Bible says without the shame of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Someone has to die for your sins. Well, in the Old Testament, it was a lamb. And you were supposed to bring your very best lamb to the temple. They would kill the lamb, place the lamb on the altar. That aroma would be pleasing to God and you would be forgiven of your sins for one year. Well, Jesus changes all that, right? Because Jesus is the ultimate Lamb of God who's died for our sins once and for all. But before that time, people would bring these lambs to the temple to be sacrificed. Well, guess what? The lamb wasn't good enough. The priest would examine the lamb, and they say, oh, this lamb's not good enough to be sacrificed. You need to buy one of our lambs in our temple flock for an exorbitant price. What did Jesus think of the Sadducees? You remember, don't you? Because one day he walked into the temple, the troublemaker that he was. 
and he made a whip. And then he made a point. And he overturned the money changers' tables. And he said, get those animals out of here. You've made my father's house a den of thieves. But my father's house will be a place of prayer. Do you think that didn't get the attention of the Sadducees? Do you think maybe they wanted Jesus to die too? Oh, Jesus was the Messiah. He just wasn't the Messiah anyone was looking for. And what's interesting is when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find that everybody wants Jesus to take a side. Everybody wants Jesus to take a side. But let me tell you something about Jesus. Jesus doesn't take sides. There is this amazing passage of Scripture in the Old Testament where Joshua is getting ready to go take on the fortified city of Jericho. And he's freaking out a little bit. And so he's heading there with his troops, and, and he's ahead of everybody else, and he encounters an angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord has the sword, sword drawn. And so Joshua asked the question, are you for them? Are you for us? Whose side are you on? And the angel of the Lord said, I am on the Lord's side. What is this world, this evil world system trying to do to us right now? They're trying to divide us. Don't you allow yourself to be conned into that trick. Whose side are you on? You're not on either one of those sides. You are on the Lord's side. As for me and my house, we serve the Lord. That's the side you want to be on. Jesus didn't come to take sides. He came to die for our sins. He came to offer us salvation, abundant life on this earth, eternal life in heaven. He came to pay the sin debt that there was no way we could pay ourselves. And Jesus came to establish this community of faith that we call the church. He came to bring us together, to be a part of something beautiful, to be a part of something awestruck, something that a lost and dying world would long to be a part of. And it's so interesting that when Jesus starts putting his community of faith together, he says, it's for anyone who wants it. All can come. And so when Jesus is picking his disciples, it's so interesting to me that he picks Simon the Zealot to be one of his disciples. And he says, hey, Simon, you think we need to have war against the Roman occupation and get the Romans out of here, and the only way to make change is to kill people. Hey, I want you on my team. Because you're going to find out that's not the way to go. And I want you to room with Matthew. He's a tax collector. He's collaborated with the Roman government. He's sold his people out for money. You two room together. You should have some interesting things to talk about. I'll tell you right now. Why don't you guys go together? And Nicodemus. Oh, Nicodemus, you Pharisee. You love all your rules and all your regulations, and you've determined who's worthy of the kingdom of God and who's not worthy of the kingdom of God. I want you to hang out with the Samaritan woman at the well. Wrong gender, wrong background, wrong sexual history. She'd been married five times, currently living with the guy. Why don't you sit down and talk to her about the grace of God? He starts putting this community together of all these oddballs, And they start learning how to love each other and pray for each other and care for each other. And Jesus says, listen, they're, they're going to hate you because of me. And they do. And they're going to laugh at you and they're going to mock you and they're going to spit at you. And here's what I want you to do. 
I just want you to keep loving them. Because by this, all men will know that you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. A new commandment I give to you today. Love one another as I have loved you. That's what Jesus said. He said, they're going to smack you on one cheek. You give them the other. They're going to ask you to walk one mile. You be willing to go the second. And how are we going to change this world? One person at a time. Loving them and caring about them and praying for them in a way they've never been loved and cared and prayed for before. We will change the world through love. And then Jesus showed us the full extent of his love by dying on the cross for a sinner like you and me. So when it gets right down to it, maybe judgment day will go like this. Did you love God? And did you really love others? Or was there some Pharisee in you? Was there some Sadducee in you? Were you a holy little huddle like the Essenes? Did you get really angry at the world's situation and say, the only way things can change? No, it's through love. Loving people like they've never been loved before. You know what's interesting? When we study the book of Acts at the end of this year, no one had ever seen a community of people like this before, and people flocked to it. Because they had never been loved like that before. Let me tell you something, friends. The world does not need another church of attackers. And the world does not need another church of withdrawers. And the world doesn't need another church of rule followers where we're known for what we're against more than what we're for. And the world doesn't need another church of collaborators health, wealth, prosperity gospel. The world needs Jesus, the Messiah, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. And the only way they're going to see him is by the way we love one another. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we have got to learn to love like you loved us. We've got to start seeing people the way you see people. We've got to start praying for people and reaching out to people and meeting needs of the people that are all around us. Lord, we have to love people better than they've ever been loved before, regardless of how jacked up their life is or what they think is wrong and what they think is right. We have to enter into places that nobody else wants to go because that's what you did because you cared about everyone. So fill us with your love, with your kindness, with your goodness, with your grace. And may people see the difference that you've made. Transform us with your love so we might be a conduit of that love to other people. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.